Coming out of Advent, we're finishing our series on what we would call cultural apologetics, looking at situations and issues in our culture with which we have to deal, which we always don't fully understand. And so you might wonder why the topic today is in that series. I think that we've got a real problem in our society today. We live in a very uncivil society. Whatever happened to civility? You know, when I was at the hospital the other day with David and Leo Cardi, I was waiting outside just before they arrived and I looked over there on the wall and there was a sign in the hospital. It read this way. Our hospital is a healing environment free of any type of violent or aggressive behavior. Please treat others with courtesy and respect Aggressive or violent behavior will not be tolerated. I got to thinking 30, 40, 50 years ago, there would have been no need for such a sign in a hospital. Can you imagine that in a place of healing? It went on to say examples of prohibited behavior are emotional, physical, or verbal abuse or assault, harassment, threatening or violent behavior, abusive or sexual language, bullying, Anyone who shows aggressive or violent behavior may be removed from the facility and uh, by the facility or staff and further legal action, including pressing criminal charges, may be taken. Can you imagine having to put that sign in a hospital in America in 2023? But that's not the only place. We know that we have it all over society, politics. <laughs> Mudslinging is not new to American politics. Negative campaigning is not new, but of course it is more intense than it's ever been. What is changing a bit is voters. You know, most congressmen, senators have their own social media accounts. And a survey done recently indicates that on their accounts, not from the congressman, but feedback from the voters, that 23% of the social media postings are vicious. Name-calling, casting aspersions, lying vulgarity, contemptuous language, impolite behavior, an attempt to destroy people's reputations, and in fact, undermine the institutions of our nation. Bottom line, folks, we have the First Amendment, and I know that. Freedom of religion, that is, free exercise and no establishment. We have the freedom of speech and press and the right to petition and to assemble how? Peaceably. But there are boundaries. There are boundaries. We may be, according to free speech, free to say virtually anything that we want, but the scripture tells us it's not always right. There are boundaries. In the workplace, Harvard Business Review a few years ago <laughs> made an understatement. It said, rudeness at work is rampant. Recent surveys of workers have shown that over half of the workers that were surveyed said that they were treated rudely at least once a week with disrespectful behavior from bosses, from comments about their race, religion, gender, emotional put-downs, insulting language, nasty notes, public rep reprimands when it was not appropriate, when they were not appropriate. 
gossiping behind workers' backs, and it's affected the bottom line. That's why it was in Harvard Business Review. It affects profits. Those that were surveyed said that 48% of them had decreased decreased their work effort, 38% as a result decreased the quality of their work, and two-thirds of them believed that their work performance had declined as a result. Most of them, three-fourths, said that it reduced their commitment to the organization for which they work. And here's where the bottom line hits the bottom line. 25% of them said that that kind of behavior then caused them to take it out on whom? The customers. In our public schools, a UCLA survey about three years ago surveyed 500 principals across the country. 90% of them say that incivility in the political world has affected the kids at school. 80% said they've had to discipline students for uncivil behavior. 80% say that students regularly make remarks about race and ethnicity that are demeaning. 80% of them said that this is probably due to social media and unreliable media sources. And 90% of the principals said that they believe that many students post hateful notes on social media. In the universities, it's not much different uncivil behavior in the classroom, offensive language, bullying of professors, a sense of entitlement by students because they're rather egocentric and presumptuous, blaming the instructor for their lack of performance in class instead of themselves. You know, what, what is the common denominator between all of these things? I think we know. We live in a world where, and it's not just one generation, I think our whole society is moving in this direction self-focused, a selfish focus on self-importance, a kind of cult of individualism, a sense of entitlement, the world owes me, the behavior of influencers in the public media, politicians who are uncivil, media, athletes, celebrities, influencers on the internet, social media that want to make a name for themselves, but also, too, because of what we've said many times in the past few weeks. Relativism. Well, there's no objective truth. Truth is what I say it is. What I say is what really counts. And what this has done is it has caused an eroding of moral values. And bottom line, this is, I think, what it really comes down to. Bottom line, a lack of respect. A lack of respect for others. A lack of respect for institutions of our nation. A lack of respect, in fact, for self. I think at the core of this is not just a lack of respect for others, but it's a misunderstanding of the dignity that we carry within us having been created by God. So what's the solution? It's very simple. It's simple to say, and it may even be simple to preach, but it's difficult to implement. In the Sermon on the Mount, near the end of what we would call the kingdom ethic teachings, Jesus makes a very pithy and brief statement, and you know what it is. Therefore, in everything, treat people the same way that you want them to treat you. And what is that? What is that? It's a golden rule. And then he concludes by saying, for this is the law and the prophets, the golden rule. 
We don't know when it began to be called the golden rule, but if you stop and think about it, that's the simple solution to things. Some say, according to legend, that Emperor Alexander Severus in the third century had it emblazoned on the wall of his palace in gold, and therefore the golden rule. It began to be preached as a golden rule in the 17th century by Anglican preachers in England like Charles Gibbon and William Perkins and Thomas Taylor. But the fact of the matter is, it is not explicitly and exclusively only a Christian principle. We know that. Most cultures have some form of the golden rule. Virtually all major religions have some form of the golden rule. In the first century BC, the rabbi Hillel summarized it for a Gentile to whom he was speaking. He said this, what is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah. That is all the law, while the rest is just commentary. In Tobit, the apocryphal work that was about two centuries before that, it's even shorter. It says, and what you hate, do not do to anyone. We find a similar rule in Islam and Zoroastrianism, Buddhism, Hinduism, in the Far East, and Confucianism, and Taoism, Sikhism, and Jainism, most major religions have this as a basic principle. Most ancient cultures, Greece, Rome, Persia, Egypt, and India, all had some form of it. Thales, the 6th century BC Greek philosopher, put it this way, avoid doing what you would blame others for doing. Seneca, the philosopher of first century Rome said this, treat your inferior as you would wish your superior to treat you. So what are the implications of this? It's not exclusively, it's not only a Christian or Jewish principle. It's a universal principle outside the Judeo-Christian tradition. It's virtually embedded in natural law. Benedict the 16th, who just passed away at the end of the year, on a visit to the United States in 2008, made this very clear. He said, the golden rule is given in the Bible, but it is valid for all people, including non-believers. He's right. It is the law written in the human heart. On this, we can all agree, so that when we come to address other matters, we can do so in a positive and constructive manner. Well, you know, this bothers some people when we find things out there in culture that are mirrored in Scripture because some want to say, well, it's in Scripture because it began in culture. It's the other way around. This is God's law, and it is God's law that has been working in the natural world from creation, and that's the way he made the world. It's imprinted on the human conscience. It is intuitively a part of who we are because of the way God made us. And if you stop and think about it, it is really the only human solution to peace. Now we know that the only solution to peace is not just human, it comes from God. But if humans all would obey this principle, we would have peace. There are limitations in the other versions, however, and there is a distinctiveness about the Judeo-Christian principle, and especially that preached in the Sermon on the Mount. Most of the others are stated negatively. In Buddhism it says this, hurt not others in ways that you yourself would find hurtful. In Hinduism, one should never do that to another which one regards as injurious to one's own self. For you see that this is the rule of dharma, that is righteousness. In Confucianism, 
that which you do not desire, do not do to others. The problem with this is you can obey this rule by completely withdrawing from society and doing what? Nothing. Not engaging at all. Avoiding everyone else. It could be a do-nothing philosophy that separates us from one another. Another problem with many of the other traditions, now not all of them, some are connected with a belief in God, but many of them are completely humanistic and secular. The exclusive focus is on what we as humans do, and there's no moral basis that comes from a belief in God or obedience to Him. There's another problem with it. They can be highly subjective in their application. You see, when we separate this rule from God, then there's no objective moral standard behind it. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you says this, I'm going to treat you this way because I think that this is the way that you ought to be treated. Hmm. You see, it's very subjective. I define what is right by the way I want to be treated, and there's no really objective moral basis to it. And it can be very utilitarian. Yes, It can be, I do this to you and treat you well because I want you to do what? I want you to treat me well. In other words, reciprocity, a kind of what some theologians have called naive egoism, where we do it because of what's in it for us. But the scriptural principle, the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus said, when you look at this text, the biblical context, it's different. You know, when you look at verse number 12, and you look at the context, it it doesn't at first seem to fit. Verses 7 through 11, for example, are the ask, seek, knock. It's that passage. And then you shift from that, the fatherly provision, to this statement that Jesus makes. Actually, when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, from about the middle of chapter 5 all the way down to this verse, there are a series of seemingly disjointed teachings, and then all of a sudden you have this verse. So what's the context? Well, the clue is when you look at the end of the verse, when Jesus says, for this is the what? The law and the prophets. And you go back in the Sermon on the Mount, previously he has said this in verse 17 of chapter 5, don't think that I have come to abolish the what? The law or the prophets, in fact, I have come to do what? I have come to fulfill them. And then he says this in that short passage, the next three verses. You see, if your righteousness doesn't exceed that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The point is this. In verse number 21 of chapter 5, all the way down to this point, then what he does is he gives example after example after example of what we would call the kingdom ethic. And that is, how is the law? How are the prophets fulfilled? And he comes down to this verse then, and he says what? You know, if I'm going to sum everything up, it boils down to this. Everything that I've said in this sermon really means this. You need to do to others as you would have them do unto you. Because you see, this sums up the law and the prophets. You know, the kingdom ethic in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, in that intervening passage from 521 to 712, what he does is he talks about how the law and the prophets relate to humans, 
You have heard it said, but I say unto you. And then he talks about how the law and the prophets describe how we should relate to God, and he talks about pious acts. Then he talks about our relationship to wealth, and then our anxiety about it. And he says the best solution to that is seek ye first the what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then he talks about not being judgmental, and then the Father's provision, ask, seek, and knock. And then he wraps it up together, and he says, I'm summing this up. And he gives the golden rule. And there are three applications, I think, of that statement. Number one, the golden rule does, in fact, summarize the law and the prophets, simply, as fulfilled by Jesus, as he has described in the Sermon on the Mount. A second application of that statement about the law and the prophets is that Jesus' sermon that he has just preached has given example after example after example of how we should keep the golden rule. Don't let your acts of righteousness, for example, be publicly known. Be humble about it. Keep them secret. And then finally, the law and the prophets provide, and this is important, the law and the prophets, God's word is that which provides the moral basis for the application of the golden rule. So those that say we can have the golden rule without God, there's a subjectivity to this, and it's just the way I think things ought to be. No, Jesus is saying here, the moral basis for the golden rule is the law and the prophets. So what's the meaning of the golden rule? I think it's based on two divine principles. The first of those is human dignity and purpose, about which we have spoken before. And the other is the rule of love. When we think about human dignity and purpose, we know this behind the golden rule. God created us how? Male and female, but he created us further how? In his image. He created us with dignity. Every person has value. In the sight of God, everybody has inestimable worth. And he loves us. He looks at his creation, he says it's good, and he looks at us and he loves us. And he created us with that dignity to have a relationship with him. And our purpose, as we said over and over, is to do what? Is to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. So we've got that first principle. Human dignity, every person that we see when we walk outside this congregation. Every person within this congregation created by God in his image and has dignity and should be honored for that dignity because God loves them. And it leads us then to the rule of love, which is twofold. What are the two great commandments? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. You see, we can do this, John tells us, only because God first loved us and because he loved us It enables us to love him. And so the first great commandment from the Shema is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And then we know the second great commandment Jesus told us is then the second unto this is to love your neighbor as yourself from Leviticus. Leviticus 19. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. This is what he said to the lawyer in the temple who asked him about what was the most important commandment, and they then, he then recited the two great commandments. You see, this rule of love is being explained how we then love one another, how we then love our neighbor. And it's reiterated by the apostles. Paul puts it this way in Romans 13, just after the passage which Barry read this morning. 
Owe no one, uh, owe nothing to anyone except love to one another. For he who loves his neighbor has done what? Has fulfilled the law. And then a little later in that passage, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. James puts it succinctly. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and you are doing well. In the Book of Common Prayer, there's a catechism, and question and answer number 21 brings both of these principles together. That is, to love your neighbor and then to do to your neighbor what you want done to you. It says this, what is your duty towards your neighbor? And the answer is, my duty toward my neighbor is to love him or her as myself and to do to all persons as I would that they should do unto me. And then the Book of Common Prayer lays out six ways to do that, and I think they're very instructive. How do you do this? How do you love your neighbor? How do you treat one as you would want to be treated? The first is love. Honor. Help your parents and your family. Honor those that are in authority. I think that's good advice. Secondly, it says respect life. Pray for peace. Bear no malice, prejudice. Be kind to all of God's creatures. Thirdly, the bodily desires that we have been given by God, we should use as God intended them to be used. Fourth, be honest. Seek justice and freedom for everyone and responsibly use your talents and your possessions for that end. Next to last, speak the truth. Don't mislead others, even by silence. And finally, no envy, no greed, no jealousy. And boy, this is a hard one. Rejoice in others' gifts and graces, being motivated by the love of God. I think that is good advice on how to implement the golden rule. So what enables us to do this? What enables us to keep the golden rule? Well, I think it boils down to this. We need to look at things from other people's point of view, not just from ours. We need to try to get in their skin and see how they look at things. We need to have a genuine empathy and compassion for others. In other words, we need to have a mind like Christ, a mind and a soul regenerated by the Holy Spirit that cares actually more for others than we do for ourselves, and that is a hard thing to do. For in Philippians, that great passage, the pouring out passage of Jesus, Just before that canonic passage, Paul tells the Philippians, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as, listen to this, more important than yourselves. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. And have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Jesus Christ. And that is the platform from which then Paul then explains what Jesus did. He did what? He poured himself out because he cared more for you than he did for himself. And then the passage says to do this in everything. In everything, therefore, we are to apply the golden rule universally, situationally, and unconditionally. Universally, it means to all persons. 
not just to Christians. Some, some uh, theologians have interpreted this passage to say the golden rule only applies to Christians. That's ludicrous. No. It is have respect for every person. For God shows no favoritism. The Sermon on the Mount says it. It says he causes the sun to rise on whom? On the evil and the good. He causes the rain then to bless the righteous and the unrighteous. God is no respecter of persons, neither should we be. Universally, situationally, in all circumstances. The King James Version puts it this way. All things whatsoever, all things whatsoever you would that persons should do to you, do also to them. You see... This means in every aspect and phase of life, everything that we do is touched by this. When Matthew uses this phrase, all things whatsoever, he does it two other times in the gospel, and they all have to do with fulfilling God's will. In Matthew 21, he said, all things whatsoever you ask in prayer, believing you will receive in order to accomplish the will of God. And in the Great Commission, in Matthew 28, 19, he says, teaching them to observe what? All things whatsoever I have commanded you. So you see what Matthew is saying is in every situation, in every circumstance, we are to do this because we're fulfilling the will of God. It's also to be unconditional in everything. Unconditional means there's no condition of, of, that we are laying before God. We do some act of kindness for someone else simply because God tells us to do it with no expectation of personal gain, with no conditions, with no limitations. Now, you know there's another place where the golden rule is found, and it's found in Luke's gospel. And Matthew has given in the Sermon on the Mount these scattered observations that Jesus makes about how to fulfill the kingdom ethic. It's interesting, Luke brings all of these that have to do with the golden rule together in one passage. In Luke, the sixth chapter, let me read it. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. And here it is. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. And then he gives an exposition of this, a commentary on what he has just said. He says, if you love, you see, those that love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do, do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If, if you lend to those for whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? You see, even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But I say to you, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High. For he himself is kind, and not just to those that are kind. He is kind to the ungrateful and even to evil men. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged, and do not condemn, and you will not be condemned pardon and you will be pardoned. You see what Luke does here is he lays out in the context of the golden rule some very radical behaviors. It takes radical action to fulfill the golden rule. What does he say here? And it is said in the Sermon on the Mount, but he brings all of these things together in the context of the golden rule. He says, love your enemies. What does that mean? Don't hate your enemies. Wow, that's hard to do. 
Don't retaliate. And as we heard earlier from Romans, that means vengeance is mine, the Lord says. We let him vindicate. Give expecting nothing in return. That's in the context of he's already said to us, the Father loves us. All we have to do is do what? Ask, seek, and knock, and he will give to us. So we should be able to give to others without expecting return from them. Don't be judgmental. In other words, forgive and you will be forgiven. Matthew adds one more to this in the Sermon on the Mount where he also then says, go the extra mile. Go the extra mile. When somebody has authority over you and can force you to go one mile, go the second mile for him. These are radical expectations, radical implications associated with them. What's so radical about this? If we really follow the golden rule seriously, it makes us completely vulnerable. You see, this parallels Jesus' hard call to discipleship. To do what? If you're going to follow me, do what? Die to self. Die to self and take up your cross and follow me. The risk of discipleship means this. When we apply the golden rule and we do something for someone else, even if they are hateful, mean, spiteful, and nasty, (laughs) there's no promise that they will reciprocate in kindness. As a matter of fact, there's almost always the assurance in this world today that they will take advantage of it and they will ridicule us for the gesture. You see, we make ourselves vulnerable. A second radical application is it means that we yield our personal rights. But I've got these rights. They're my rights. They're in the Constitution. Freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom of all of those things. But we yield our rights to whom? To the Lord. Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. And then he says this, let your yielding spirit be known to all persons because the Lord is near. We're not yielding to the people. We're yielding to the Lord. That's radical. Just like Moses. The scripture tells us in Numbers that Moses was the humblest man alive. And he had all the reason in the world to be the proudest. The scripture doesn't say that second part. I said that. (laughs) He was the humblest man alive. And yet he was never jealous and he was never threatened by human opposition. When Miriam, his own sister, defies his leadership, what does he do? He doesn't closet her away and put her away. He had to put her away for a while because she had leprosy. But what did he do? He prayed for her. He interceded for her. When Joshua comes to him and chides him because Eldad and Medad are out there prophesying in the camp, "Ah, they shouldn't be prophesying, Moses looks at him and said, what's bothering you, Joshua? Are you worried about me? Is this about me? He says, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people should prophesy and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them all. You see, Moses was never threatened when we apply the golden rule and the Lord's in control. We should never be threatened about our own authority. Like Hosea. God called Hosea to marry a prostitute. And what did she do? She went out and she was unfaithful to him. That didn't threaten Hosea's manhood. It didn't even threaten his ministry. It didn't invalidate his ministry. No, what did he do? He restored her and he loved her. It's like Jesus, the Son of God. Equal to God in all of his glory and in the canonic hymn, we know what he did in Philippians. He did what? He poured himself out. He took on himself the form of a man and he was obedient even to death on the cross so that he might cancel our sin. Another radical application of this is 
Folks, the golden rule cannot be done unless we absolutely trust God and not ourselves. We trust Him to protect us, and we trust Him to vindicate His cause, not ours. Like David. David had two opportunities to kill Saul. Saul had been pursuing him and wanted his life, and yet he had two opportunities to kill him, and he didn't do so. He refused to do so because he trusted God. He refused to do so because he would not subvert the Lord's will. He said this on the first occasion, far be it from me because of the Lord, that is the Lord God, that I should do this thing to my Lord, that is the king, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him. Since he is the Lord's anointed, he would not go against God's will. You see, we need to trust God and sometimes surrender our rights. We need to trust him to supply all of our needs, not relying on worldly things. Now, the Lord blesses us as we prayed in the pastoral prayer. He blesses us with many benefits and with many worldly things, but we don't depend on those. Like, like Paul, he quenched his desire for power, position, and possessions for the sake of Christ. I count all things as lost in view of the surpassing knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I might gain Christ. It's radical. It's radical if we are going to apply the golden rule the way Jesus preaches it. I do believe this. It doesn't mean that we just roll over and play dead. I don't think that it means that we let people trample over us willy-nilly. There are times when we must take a stand. Do you believe that? When do we take a stand? We take a stand for God's truth and God's righteousness, but not for self-righteousness. When we must take a stand for God's truth and righteousness, we, we, we should do so, but not for self and not for self-promotion. And there's some people that use the gospel and use scripture for self-promotion, and that is not the golden rule. We should take a stand when we are called to advocate for the oppressed, for the least of these, my brothers. And in so doing, what do we do? We actually are treating them that are oppressed as we would want to be treated. We must take a stand to resist evil. You know what John Stuart Mill, the utilitarian philosopher in the 19th, 20th century said, all it takes for evil to triumph is for good people to do what? Nothing. So no, the golden rule isn't about doing nothing. Sometimes we need to take a stand we need to resist. We need to resist evil. James tells us to submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Sometimes it means, friends, that we need to disagree with people. We need to oppose the things they say. The golden rule does not mean sit down and shut up and be quiet. Sometimes we must disagree. Jesus disagreed with the Pharisees. He disagreed with the Sadducees. On the right and the left, he disagreed with the Herodians, the scribes and the priests. And he disagreed with his disciples from time to time. He rebuked, he chastised, but he was never disagreeable. It was always redemptive. Sometimes we need to take a stand, but it needs to be redemptive. Let me close with this. I do think that the golden rule is the only human remedy for civility and peace. 
It's universally accepted by all cultures and by all religions as a principle of conscience and a hope for peace. But the fact of the matter is, folks, human depravity makes it impossible for us to accomplish in our own power. You see, we're selfish. We're self-focused. We're insecure. We mistrust. We know that if we yield to somebody else, they're going to trample on us. And the world looks at us and says, that's Pollyanna. Pragmatically, it'll never work. You're naive. Don't give up your rights. You see, none of us can do this consistently because we feel threatened and vulnerable. And yet, it's the only common sense solution for civility and peace. If you stop and think about it, I'll repeat what I said earlier. If you stop and think about it, if everyone followed the golden rule, if everyone thought about the interest of others first, if everybody in our society treated the other person the way they really wanted to be treated, there would be what? There would be peace. Well, you know what I'm going to say. We can't do this in our own right. We can only do this when we have been transformed. When our spirit has been transformed, when our hearts have been changed by the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the only solution. For the one that spoke the golden rule is the golden rule. The one that spoke the golden rule enables and empowers us to keep it only when we trust him. You know, in the hymn of invitation that we're going to sing in just a moment, Come, all Christians, be committed. It talks about turning our hearts in one accord and being transformed with life anew. And then it says this, God's command to love each other is required of everyone. Showing mercy to each other mirrors his redeeming son. The only hope for a return to civility in our society is for our society to turn to the Lord Jesus. This morning, that's the invitation for you. Do you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Do you know the one who not only spoke the golden rule, but is the golden rule in life? And he beckons you today, and he calls to you to surrender your life, to surrender your rights, to surrender all of who you are and all of what you do to him as Lord and Savior. That is the invitation this morning. Let's stand together as we respond.